Amen. All right, if you guys have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to uh, Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And as you're turning there, uh, last week, um, Gavin had uh, preached from Psalm 16, and we are now continuing uh, in Psalm 22. They don't, come, um, they don't come sequentially or chronologically, and so Psalm 22, at least dating-wise, I'm not sure uh, when it was written in relation to Psalm 16. Um, but that doesn't matter, really, um, because in Psalm 22, this is what uh, David says. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my, sh- my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me. From the, from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever felt like you were abandoned by people? Have you felt like people weren't there for you when you needed them to be? Have you ever been abandoned by others? You know, Megan told me of this um, this hilarious and crazy story when many, many years ago, she used to serve in Lamplighters, our ministry for our moms at Lighthouse with young kids. And at the time, Lamplighters 
wasn't even at Lighthouse yet, and it was way smaller. There were less kids, but it also meant that there were uh, less helpers. And uh, on a particular lamplighter day, there was a baby who had pooped their diaper so bad that it leaked out of the diaper. Now, the only helpers that were there uh, were Megan, uh, Jen Shida, and this one other person who will not be named. Because, this, because the smell was so bad, and to prevent other kids from walking in the poop, uh, Megan took the baby into another classroom to change her diaper. But the policy uh, is that you can't be alone with a kid by yourself. And so Megan had asked Jen to help her. And so Megan is trying to change you know, this baby's diaper, and Jen is trying to coach her through it. Uh, and this baby is screaming and crying. And then all of a sudden, the crying baby throws up all over Jen. And in, in, in Megan's words, it was pure chaos. But wait, you ask. What about that one other person who will not be named? Well, while Megan was cleaning up the poop and Jen was cleaning up the barf, this other person was standing in the hallway just watching. <laughs> and seeing this person standing in the hallway watching, Megan asks this person to help, to which this person says, nah, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> and he walks away. And this person was me, just saying, it was not me. It actually was not me. It was not me. That's how Megan and I started dating. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it was not. It was, it was hilarious. Uh, if you want to know who it was, ask me after. Uh, but it was not me. <laughs> it was not me. <laughs> it would have been hilarious if it was me, but it actually isn't. Um, it, um, but it was, it was a hilarious and at the same time, a terrible comedy of everything going wrong. Um, a blown out diaper, um, a vomiting baby, and no one to help. Have you been abandoned by others? Have you ever felt like people weren't there for you when you needed them to be? That in your greatest moment of need, no one was there. And you know, as, as high schoolers, I'm sure you've never had problems with people flaking on you. And I'm sure you've never had problems flaking on others as well, right? Am I right, high schoolers? Yeah. Never. Uh, but in case you guys didn't catch my sarcasm, the rea reality is that high schoolers are probably the worst offenders of commitment and faithfulness. Maybe someone promised you uh, that they would go to your car wash fundraiser, and you hoped that they would, but they didn't. So you didn't raise enough money. Uh, maybe there was a project that was supposed to be done with a group, but everyone else bailed, and so you had to complete the project. Maybe you were supposed to meet with a friend somewhere, and they just didn't show up. When people drop the ball, when they flake and abandon us, while it's often disappointing, at the end of the day, they're just people. We flake on others, and others flake on us. Sometimes we're no-shows, and other times uh, we're no-shows ourselves. Flakiness and abandonment is what we expect of people. But what about God? Is abandonment a feature that we expect of God? What if the person who didn't show up was God? What if the person who abandoned you was God? That, that as, as you clean up the mess of your own life, God is the one who just stands in the hallway watching and leaving you in your moment of need. And you know, I think for some of us, as much as we feel a little uncomfortable thinking about this, I think this is actually something that we've all thought about before, but maybe are a little too afraid to admit. If, if God is supposed to be in control of our lives, then why is my life such a mess? It, we're often told that everything happens in our lives um, has been passed through the loving hand of God, but we feel guilty for being ungrateful for what happens in our lives. Because as much as that sounds nice, we feel like our lives are dealt one terrible hand of God after another. God is set to work all things together for our good. 
And on some, and, and some days, that is the most powerful promise that you'll ever hear. But on other days, it's as helpful as a Hallmark greeting card, just trite and semi-cringe. <laughs> when C.S. Lewis's wife of only three years had passed away, C.S. Lewis had entered into such a dark period of grief and loss that he said this in a book called The Grief Observed. He says, meanwhile, where is God? When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, so, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when, you need, when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away because the longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in our time of trouble? When your parents lose their jobs, when, when you're mocked by others, when you struggle with unwanted same-sex desires, when you suffer from crippling anxiety, when you are betrayed by others, when you can't seem to catch a break, when you have problems at home, where is God? You might be asking. If God truly does speak, then why have I only suffered his silence? When it seems that God has hidden his face, what do you do? And it's in Psalm 22 that God gives us an answer. And so the key idea is that when God hides his face, we keep turning to him and we keep trusting him. We keep turning to him and we keep trusting him. The first is that we keep turning to him. Now take a look again at the subscript of verse 1. It says, To the choir master according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. Actually, that's not quite an appropriate translation. I think the translators just didn't know what to, how to translate it. Uh, they don't know what it means, and I don't know either. Um, but all, all that we know, actually, is that uh, it is written by King David. We're not given details on when he wrote it or the circumstances surrounding the writing of it, but we are told that it, it, what we are told is how he responds to God's silence. When David's life is falling apart, David turns to God, the very reason for his grief and his sorrow. And so as David turns to God, he shows us three ways we turn to God when God hides his face from us. The first is, we, the first is by lamenting to his face. By lamenting to his face. And take a look at verse 1 again. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now, the question I want to ask you guys is, is this normally how you start your prayers? If you've been a Christian for a while or if you've been going to church for any length of time, chances are that you've developed a language for talking with God. But not like this. Not with such intensity. Not with such raw honesty. I'm convinced that when we face trials, Sorrow, grief, and difficulty, this is not the language that we use if we even go to God at all. And I think one of the reasons why is because we have never been taught the language of lament. One of the reasons why we have no idea what to say to people and how to help people who grieve and suffer is because we likely haven't been given the language of lament. We know how to praise God for answered prayer and we know how to ask God as we pray for others, but we have no clue what to do 
or what to say when people share their grief and their sorrow with us. We have lost the practice of biblical lament. So what is biblical lament? Biblical lament is not the same as complaining. For some of you, you might be wondering how lament is different from complaining and venting. Maybe that's one of the reasons why we don't talk to God like this. Lament almost sounds like complaining and slides into self-pity and ungratefulness. Like a couple of years ago, uh, there was a baptismal testimony of some college student who was upset at God because he thought that he'd get into all these different Ivy League schools but didn't, and so he had to settle for UCLA instead. And I was like, wow, life must be so hard for you right now. So of course, laments can simply be complaining if we're upset at the difference between a 1580 and a 1600 on an SAT. Actually, that is a little upsetting. Like, you're only 20 <laughs> points off. You're like, like, why don't I just get 1600? But the Psalms don't offer us a cheap picture of therapy that simply expresses our emotions for their own sake. As if we could feel better if we just dumped our emotions on someone. That's not what lament is. What we see in, in this verse is an honest picture of a person laying open his heart before his covenant God. In the Psalms, the picture that we see are a picture of a people who were constantly getting in God's face. More than a third of the Psalms, if you didn't know, are Psalms of lament. More than 50 of the 150 Psalms are Psalms of lament. So secondly, is that biblical lament is hope in darkness. Biblical lament is hope in darkness. And so David's words instruct us on what lament is and what it does. It's surprising what David doesn't ask God to do. He doesn't ask God to change his circumstances. He doesn't ask God to change his pain. He doesn't ask God to change his suffering. He doesn't ask God to change his 3.9 GPA to a 4.0 or a 4.5 to a 5.0 to make the girl that you like like you back even though those are all fine things to ask God for. But what David does ask instead gets at the root of what lament is actually all about, namely his relationship with God. The only thing that he asks is why God isn't near when he promised that he would be. This was of supreme importance to God. So the question is, what about you? Is Jesus, your supreme importance as you lay your heart before God. Lament cries out to God that there is something wrong in the world and in your world, while at the same time remembering that God is faithful to his promises. That's what lament is. One pastor writes that lament is how you live between the poles of a hard life and trusting and hoping in God's goodness. So third is that biblical lament is an act of faith. Something that we must never take for granted is the fact that it takes faith to lament. One of the temptations that we face when it seems that God has abandoned us is that we treat him the same way that we treat a friend that we're mad at. Several several years ago, uh, James and I had had gotten into a disagreement. James Choi, I mean. When I say James, I think you guys all know who I mean by James. Um, And uh, we got mad at each other. And honestly, I don't even remember really uh, what we got mad at. Uh, But what's more important to the story is what happened after. Uh, We just didn't talk to each other for three weeks and gave each other the cold shoulder. And yes, guys do that too. And even though it was only for three weeks, we had allowed our friendship to drift until one of us decided that enough was enough. 
And I think that's sometimes how we treat God. We get salty with God and we give God the cold shoulder when things don't quite go our way or the way that we had expected it to. If, if God seems to ignore me, nor, uh, nor does he seem to really answer my prayers, then I'll just ignore him. But silent despair, silent despair, rather than painful lament, is the ultimate exercise of unbelief. Because silent despair lives under the hope, hopeless resignation that God doesn't care, that he doesn't hear, and that nothing is ever going to change. And you know, people who believe that God does not care, stop trusting. People, when, when they believe that God doesn't hear, they stop praying. And when they believe that nothing is ever going to change, they, they stop hoping, and they end up giving up and drifting away from God completely. In, the, in lament, we bring our whole life before our covenant God. Our, our, our doubts, our troubles, our worries, our anxieties, our pain, our grief, our bitterness, and our sorrows. And we focus our eyes on the God of promise and on the God who sees us. John Calvin, it's the reason why John Calvin says that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Fourth, or third, third? One, two, three, fourth. Okay, fourth. Fourth is that biblical lament is not a quick fix. What verse one also reminds us is that lament doesn't always lead to an immediate solution or immediate results. Lament is not a quick fix. Suffering has no TLDR. All throughout this psalm, we're given no indication to believe that David's external circumstances have changed for the better. As we bring to God our griefs and our burdens, even if we, do, uh, we need to be aware that lament isn't a simplistic formula. There is no magic bullet to our pain, even if we do bring it before God. And the reason why is because lament, again, is ultimately about our relationship with God. One relationship, our relationship with God ultimately isn't dependent on our circumstances. Our trust in God ultimately isn't dependent on whether things in our lives change for the better or even for the worse. So that the good things in our life exist to extend our joy in God. And the bad things in our life don't rob us of our joy in God. So in lament, we wait and we hope in the God who will never fail us. Fifth is that biblical lament reckons with who God ultimately is. If you take a look at verse 2, David says, Oh, God, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. Why is God silent here? When God doesn't answer, it's not because God is unable to speak or because he is unaware. One reason I think that God is silent here is because God cannot be coerced. God cannot be coerced. I think some of us think that believing in Jesus is a lot like playing a game of Monopoly. You know, when we get into trouble, Jesus is our get out of a jail free card and that somehow believing in Jesus grants us immunity from the difficult realities of life. I mean, it's the reason why many of you believe in Jesus and go to church, right? That if we go to church every day or every Friday and Sunday and we do our quiet times, we act nice with people around us, we are shielded from difficulty. But if we have learned anything from the life of Jesus, it's that Jesus' life shatters the myth that our own righteousness can shield us from unwanted and unwarranted suffering. This doesn't mean that righteousness is pointless, 
but it means that our motives for living for Jesus might actually be misaligned. C.S. Lewis said this, what do, me, what do people mean when they say, I am not afraid of God because I know he is good? Have they never been to a dentist? God is good, but by no means is he safe. In lament, we are reckoning with who God really is. And it makes us examine who or what we really trust in. Because God is not a bargainer. Where if we do our due diligence, God will reward us. God is absolutely the God of grace. He shines his face upon you. He lavishes his love upon you. And when he does, when he does so, it's only because he wants to. Not because you did all these, things, all these things for him. For God to be the God of grace also means that God is not your debtor. God is not your debtor. And that brings us to the second way. So the first is we lament to his face. The second is by holding him to his promises. By holding him to his promises. You know, when I was younger, one of my, uh, one of my favorite and annoying phrases that I love to use and tell my parents was, but you promised. And uh, I call it, you know, the entitlement syndrome of the, of the oldest child. <clears throat> Bless you. But when my parents promised that they would take me to ride my bike, but forgot that they had promised, uh, I would tell them, but you promised. Uh, when my parents promised that they would take me to Toys R Us, which I don't think even you guys, do you guys know what Toys R Us, Toys R Us is? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I hear the front the plan bringing it back. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know, guys. I don't know. It closed, didn't it? Yeah, okay, all right. You guys are all like, what the heck? Uh, okay, anyway, I would tell them, shh. I would tell them, but you promised. And that might still be your favorite phrase with your parents, but you promised to take me to Boba or whatever. Um, anyways, uh, I was a super annoying kid like that. Um, actually, it's kind of funny. I asked Megan uh, if we would have been, been friends if we knew, knew each other as kids. And Megan was like, uh, probably not because you're probably that annoying entitled kid. And she was not wrong. Um, anyway, as annoying as it, this, as it is, this is actually what David does. Take a look at verses 3 to 5. He says, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. And so what David is doing here, and what you have to recognize, is that he is throwing the promises of God back at his face by appealing to God's character. He says, yet you are holy. Now, I've talked about this before, but for many of us, we tend to think that holiness is being morally upright. And even though that's part of what holiness is, moral uprightness isn't the complete picture. The word for holy is the word kadesh. And what it actually means is to be set apart. And the question is, set apart from what? As the holy creator, God is absolutely distinct and separate from his creation. But as the holy king of Israel, God is absolutely distinct and separate from the false gods of Israel's neighbors. Now, why is that important for us to know? It's because as the distinct and holy God, God is actually the God who bends his ear to listen to his people, unlike the gods of the neighboring nations. As the distinct and holy God, God is actually the one who is intimately present and involved in the lives of his people, unlike the false gods who cannot deliver on their promises. It's the reason why David mentions his ancestors. When his ancestors trusted and cried out to God, God delivered them and he rescued them, unlike the pagan deities. It's precisely the reason why, God, why David is so confused. You guys understand the logic here? 
Why does an all-powerful and holy God who is in the business of rescuing his people suddenly and without reason hide himself and withdraw his presence? What we see in David's response is that he holds God responsible for his promises precisely because he knows who God characteristically is. David complains to God's face because he knows that God never makes a promise that he will not keep. That is theology in action. As we wait on God, we're not supposed to be content and resigned with the way things are. In fact, because of who God is, when God is silent and when things aren't the way they should be, we hold God responsible for his promises and we hold God responsible for making things right. Is this how you talk with God? We ask God how long our suffering will last. We ask how long will he hide his face? Ultimately, the promises of God are as much of a reminder for us as it is for God. Because when we're in pain and when we are abandoned and when we are forgotten and when we are wronged, our our hearts tend to also go wrong and make false conclusions about who God is. In the same book, C.S. Lewis writes again, Not that I am, I think, in danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about Him. The conclusion I dread is not so there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Deceive yourself no longer. What about you? When you are hated on for being a Christian, when people talk behind your back, when you are taken advantage of, when you are unfairly treated, when your parents don't really seem to care about your life, when you experience anxiety in large groups, your heart is already having an internal dialogue. Take a look at verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. Our hearts are, begin, to ask questions, begin to ask questions like, does God really care about me? Where is God? And then others start joining along too. And we begin listening to them. Take a look at verse 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Notice how verse 8 is in quotes. This is what other people are saying. And it's not just anyone. It's a quote that comes from his fellow Israelites. Because we see the capitalized L-O-R-D. The people mocking David were his fellow countrymen who most likely thought that the reason David was in this situation in the first place was because of some secret sin. And while this isn't the main point of our passage, it does raise an important application here. Are we helpful comforters to those who grieve? Or are we miserable comforters who give terrible counsel? You know, when I became a Christian, I expected that there were going to be some people who were going to give me a hard time for being a Christian. But one of the surprises of growing as a Christian and being a Christian for a while now was the discovery that some of the people who gave me a hard time in the Christian life were actually professing Christian themselves. One of the worst things that you could assume about someone who is suffering is to immediately assume that they did something wrong or that there is a cause behind the suffering. And you know that sounds obvious, but I've heard too many stories of Christians telling sufferers to look back over their their lives in search of a secret sin. 
This doesn't mean that there could be sin contributing to the suffering. But what it does mean is that it shouldn't be our first assumption, but usually our last. Another worst thing that you could do with people is ask what God is teaching them as if suffering was some kind of lecture or lesson. This doesn't mean that there isn't a loving purpose behind suffering, but the question overlooks the person's suffering because we reduce the suffering person to a math problem or some kind of riddle that needs to be solved. Instead, how do we help people like David? I want to ask you guys, how, do you, how would you help someone like David? The humblest way is to simply go on our knees and lament with them. To bring our complaint to God. To call God to action. And to trust that the judge of all the earth will do what is just. Our love for the other person doesn't change, nor does our patience run thin when the darkness of our friends does not lift. Covenantal relationships are those of love that does not change when the loved one has no indication of feeling better. Because it's in these kinds of relationships that we actually clearly, most clearly see the very heart of God. As the covenant people of God, of all people, we should be the greatest comforters to come alongside, to have compassion on, to assist, to comfort, to lament with those who suffer. Because when we aren't, what we're actually doing is we're actually tragically adding to the noise of those who suffer. Because as we suffer ourselves, and as we face trial ourselves, our hearts often do get infected by hurt and trial. Our hearts submit to the doubts, the mocking, the questions, and other unwise voices. And eventually, our hearts adopt them as our own to the point where our view of God is so misshapen by our circumstances that we can't see anything but God's judgment. We can't see anything but his absence. And we can't see anything but his frown upon our lives. When something is so wrong in our lives, our reaction to it will either make us wise or it will inevitably poison us. Because great hardship and suffering, gossip behind your back, betrayal, acts of unkindness, and lack of compassion puts a fork in the road of your heart. And we will choose which path to walk down. And I think this is especially relevant for you guys. Because as a high schooler, when you suffer evil, what is your typical response to evil? I'm pretty sure it's not turn the other cheek. When you see your friends and classmates suffer evil, how do they respond? Isn't our typical response to evil is to throw it right back where it came from? To harbor corrosive bitterness and resentment. To retaliate. To never talk to them ever again. To gossip and spread rumors about them. And we start thinking to ourselves, if God is the cause for my grief and pain, then forget God. Will you who suffer evil go evil yourself? Only really hard suffering can push you to the point where either you give up on God and like Job's wife say, curse God, or you can hold fast to who God is regardless of our circumstances or how we feel. We can either come up with our own anti-psalm or we can follow the words of David. Take a look at verse 9, 9, 9, 9 to 11. Yet you, yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. 
Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Why does David bring up a time from when someone, from, from when someone still needed to change his diapers? What's the point? The point is that nothing has changed for David. As much as he faces the silence of God in the present, it doesn't change the fact that in the past, God set his love upon David. David could be in space or at the bottom of a pit or in the new heavens and new earth, but it still will not change the fact that God is still his God. Let's, let's follow his logic just for a second. If God loved him even in the womb, if God loved him in the past, why would God's objective love for him change in the present when he doesn't subjectively feel his presence? One of the biggest questions for you as a Christian is that you just don't feel God or feel his love toward you. But guess what? Welcome to David's life. This is a psalm of feeling God's abandonment and God's silence. But here is what verses 9 to 11 tells us. It tells us that God's objective love for us in the past is not contingent upon how we subjectively feel in the present. Did you guys catch that? It tells us that God's objective love for us in the past is not contingent upon how we subjectively feel in the present. If God loved you in the past, why would his love for you change in the present? If Jesus Christ is truly the same yesterday, today, and forever, it means that his love for you is the same yesterday, today, and forever, on your best days and on your worst days. On the days you feel his pleasure and on the days you feel his absence. That will never change. No amount of suffering or pain can touch that. Because at the end of the day, our faith isn't in our feelings. Our faith isn't even in how strong we can feel God's presence. Our faith is in the living God. The love of God does not change even when our circumstances do. The faithful covenantal love of God anchors our despairing and wandering hearts and calms our suffering souls. And thirdly, we turn to God by expecting his deliverance. By expecting his deliverance. Take a look at verses 12 to 21. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the, from the horns of the wild oxen. If you've been following along this entire psalm, you'll notice that Psalm 22 sounds pretty familiar. Why? I want you guys to put your finger in Psalm 22, and I want you guys to, to turn to Matthew chapter 27. 
I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I am going to read some select verses. But as I read the select verses, I want you to see the par- parallels. Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verses 33 to 35. Matthew writes, And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Verse 35, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Look at verses 38 to 40. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. Sounds familiar. And saying, you who, who would destroy the temple and rebuild it, rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Verses 45 to 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the, until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Now turn back to Psalm 22. Did you catch the parallels? Psalm 22 is a psalm of David, but Psalm 22 is ultimately a psalm about the greater David. Psalm 22 has been referred to as the psalm of the cross because on the cross, Psalm 22 was on Jesus' lips. Psalm 22 is ultimately a prophecy that points to the suffering and abandonment of Jesus the Messiah. Why? Earlier, I had asked the question, will you who suffer evil go evil yourself? And the fact of the matter is, as we actually often do, in the face of wrong, we do go wrong. That when we are sinned against, we sin back. We think that the wrongs committed against us far outweigh the wrongs that we commit against others. You know, that insult, that judgment, that impatience, that frustration with others seems so much smaller, more understandable, excusable, and even justifiable in light of what others did to you. Compared to what was done to us, what we do doesn't seem half as bad. When our parents sin against us, we feel justifiably angry at them. When people make fun of us, we feel justified in harboring resentment toward them. When our lives are difficult, we feel justified in asking, why me? Why this? Why now? Why God? But this is what Alexander Solzhenitsyn once wrote. If only there were people, evil people, somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But catch what he says. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. If only all the people who ever wronged us would be separated from us and be destroyed. If only all the people who made us suffer and grieve and disappointed would pay. But Solzhenitsyn's point is that it isn't so simple as good guy versus bad guy. Because the fact of the matter is that we are all bad. Every single one of us. The line cuts through all. Because our sins and our wrongs ultimately aren't weighed against the sins and wrongs of others, but against God. The threat of enemies, liars, and betrayers is real, but there is a far more insidious evil and enemy in our own hearts. 
Every time we wrong others in the face of being wrong, there is something far deeper going on. We erase God from the universe. That is what's at stake. That is the ultimate evil. And by erasing God from his universe, we take center stage. And as we become the center of the universe, all opinions and thoughts that we have of others are justified. Being the center of the universe justifies our rage, our self-pity, our bitterness. We show no mercy to others because we know no mercy ourselves. In our hatred toward God, we tell God to go to hell when in fact, God actually has. When we are so focused on ourselves, we fail to look out and see what God the Father did to God the Son. We should have been on that cross. We should have been the ones abandoned by God. I mean, think about that for a second. Jesus hung on the cross, abandoned there. When we should have been there, every single one of us, even that kid drawing on his nuts, we should have been on that cross. We should have been the ones abandoned by God. We should have been the ones to suffer the wrath of God, the mocking, the betrayal, the piercing of the hands. But instead, Jesus is the one who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because on the cross, Jesus was forsaken for you and for me so that we can actually say that even when I can't feel his presence, God has not abandoned me to the grave. His love for me will never change. I will never be forsaken by the living God. And when this happens, our line of questions go from why me to why you? Why should you? You guys ever thought about that? Why should, why should Jesus be the one to die for us? Why should he, the enthroned and holy God of Israel, leave his throne and enter a stable in the middle of nowhere as a baby to die for people who erase his existence from their entire lives? Why would he, why would you enter into the darkness of our world? Why should you go through loss, weakness, betrayal, mocking, and hell for me? Why should the man of sorrows be the man who takes on my sorrows? If you take a look back at verse verse 21, of Psalm 22, verse 21 is the turning point. He says, you have rescued me. That's perfect tense. It's a completed action. God has rescued me. God has changed me without ever telling us that that the external situation has changed for the better. What that tells us is that in his first coming, Jesus didn't come to get rid of suffering or to even explain suffering away. Instead, what he comes to do is to fill our suffering with his presence. To fill it with his presence. The story of Jesus shows how unfathomable uh, wrong can be transformed into unfathomable good. Because Jesus did not return evil for evil. When Jesus was sinned against, he died for the sinner. How then does the rescue and deliverance of God in Messiah transform our suffering. That leads us to the second and the shortest point is that we keep trusting him. We keep trusting him. Take a look at verses 22 to 26. 
Verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the, in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Having been transformed by the rescue and deliverance of God, the tone of the second half completely changes. It's as if the lights have been turned on and the windows have been opened. And this is what the love of God does. In and through the death of Jesus, hurt and loss can be transformed into a a deeper good. It turns a suffering people into a praising people. Still sorrowful, but hopeful. Not only hopeful, but fruitful. Not only fruitful, but coming out wiser, more loving, and more thankful. Finally, take a look at verses 27 to 31. Some of you guys wondered if I ever get to the end. I have. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. And what we see here is thankfulness and praise going public. Thankfulness and praise going public. It moves us to asking a question that apart from Jesus would have been impossible. It moves us from asking why me to why you? And then to finally, why not me? Why not this? Why not now? I want you guys to think about this question. If in some way the testimony of your faith in suffering can serve as a bright light in a dark world, then why not you? If your suffering in some way can display the sufficiency of Jesus in your suffering to your classmates and friends, then why not you? If the way that you respond to trial and suffering at school or at home or at your sports events can display the immeasurable power of God in your weakness, then why not you? If your honest struggles show other strugglers how to land on their feet, if your life can be some source of help and hope to others, then why not you? This doesn't mean that suffering is less harder nor does it mean that suffering in and of itself is good, but it does mean that in view of the suffering of Jesus, like our Savior, we have become willing. Like him, our loud cries and tears will in fact be heard by the one who saves from death. Like him, you will learn obedience through what you suffer. And like him, you will sympathize with the weaknesses of others as you suffer weakness yourself. Like him, you will be gentle with the annoying and the unlovable. And like him, you will display faith to a faithless world, hope to a hopeless world, love to a loveless world, life 
to a dying world? And if so, if that is the case, then why not you? Why not you? When God hides his face, what do we do? Let me allow Mr. Lewis to answer this question. C.S. Lewis writes again. He says, I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? In Jesus, we can expect the fullest and most final answer from God. Because when God is silent, God's answer remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. You know what that answer is? Look at his beloved son. He is what your sufferings point to, the suffering of the son. And if Jesus, then why not you? And why not me? Let's pray. God, we recognize that even in abandonment, that you have not truly abandoned us. That when the feeling of your abandonment overwhelms and hijacks our trust in you, God, we pray that you would help us to be a people who remember your promises, that we would throw your promises back to your face, and that we would remember and take hold of your promise and look to Jesus. And in looking to Jesus, that we would be a people who no longer ask, why me? Why at this time? To why you? To why not me? So God, we ask for your help. We thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.